MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, April 22nd, 2020. Today, the Senate Intelligence Committee drops its fourth report on the Russia probe and it's not good for dear leader. Seven Wisconsin voters test positive for coronavirus. The VA study shows hydroxychloroquine is not effective and is in fact dangerous. Small businesses sue big banks over the Paycheck Protection Program as a new deal is reached in Congress. Trump halts immigration. Governor Larry Hogan throws shade as Bill Barr threatens governors with criminal action. And a boatload of good news. I'm your host, A.G., and with me today is Jordan Coburn. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am well. Um, I'm so well, actually. One of our listeners was incredibly kind and offered to give me their Nintendo Switch that they don't use that much anymore. And I had a fun day of, I went to Nothing Bunt Cakes and grabbed like a little thing as just a small thank you gift because they wouldn't take any money. And it was just like a fun little day of errands and went to his house and like, exchanged it on the doorstep without seeing each other like in quarantine fashion but it was really it was just super super nice and i was uh yeah i was telling him it's gonna be like a fun quarantine memory it was like a mission impossible thing awesome awesome yeah my animal crossing is doing well i just put a fourth room a second story on my house we got a campsite uh kk might come and play a concert i've got a visitor and i've just invited them to live on the island i built a little house for him i'm really excited about where my island is headed so very very exciting and the bug guy was there today dude you can make bank off the bug guy so flick is 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 their name um do you have to buy the game separately or can you buy it is there is there like an internet connection to your switch that you could like buy and download it onto the system Yep, I downloaded it onto the system. Woohoo! Love that. Hell yeah. Yes. I'm g- I'm going to get me a fucking house and some animals with some crossings. <laughs> yeah, you start with a tent. Oh god. Yeah, you got to work your way up. Okay. But it's fast. It's really fast. So everyone everyone starts out experiencing homelessness, and that's how the game starts. That's bleak. <laughs> everyone. Yeah. Pretty much. It's like cast away and then you just, it's like, what's that Mitch Hedberg joke? I was lost in the woods, but I said, fuck it. I'll build a house. Now I live here. (laughs) It's funny. It's nice. (laughs) um, Yeah. And um, also today, Mueller is back in the news uh, for all the haters who are like, oh, you still have a Mueller podcast? Yeah. uh, He's back in the news today. I'll be discussing it with uh, the man that used to brief Mueller on the daily on a daily basis when Mueller was director of the FBI, uh, David Priest was the daily briefer for for the CIA, and I'm going to talk to him a little in a little bit about this new Senate Intelligence Committee report that came out. Um, and then of course in a few days on Friday we have our annual or annual <laughs> our weekly um, uh, cocktail hour, right? Like our live, I I don't know what do you call it quarantine it's like a conference call but but with booze i I enjoy it (laughs) and uh i think this week i'm gonna play some songs so that's uh, fun if you're into if you're into music um 
they're they're short songs they're good songs they're songs you know everyone can sing along and uh it's not going to be the whole time i'm not gonna like totally bogart the entire session with music so <laughs> 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 you know like it's not going to be like the me show but uh i you know i haven't being a you know i had to cut my nails off yesterday i, I just can't maintain them myself and and, and it's it's um more hygienic to have them shorter you know have them short and i haven't been able to play guitar with the with the fingernails so now i'm like i want to play so that's <laughs> i think we're gonna make a music sort of theme so maybe like dress is your favorite song or something like that we'll think of it and we'll send out the link and the theme on friday uh to our patrons um so that's that's all the uh sort of housekeeping stuff i have um How's everything, uh, Jordan, going Going at your apartment, hey? It's going great. Um, yeah, let's see. No- nothing really new to report today. Yesterday was a fun day. We built a fort and watched Sword in the Stone, and <laughs> that was... Uh, the, the animated one? Yes, the animated one, the super old one. Um, yeah, yeah, that was cool. What else? I don't think they've made a live action one, have they? Because that would be weird. No, they have not. That would be very difficult graphics wise. <laughs> like all the scenes where they're constantly they prob- morphing into different animals and shit. They probably will now, though. Yeah, they're really going and double dipping on all of their previous accomplishments, aren't they? Yeah, they sure are. All right. Well, we do have a lot of news to get to, as you could tell by the intro there. So why don't we jump into it? Hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, Jordan, what do you have for us today for the good old uh, A block for hot notes? Yeah, so I just have a, a couple uh, stories that are centered around coronavirus. Some of them more centered around the economic fallout of the pandemic and others more directly uh, COVID related news. But my first story, it's coming out of Italy. So Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, is that how you say that? C-O-N-T-E, I imagine. Giuseppe Conte. Conte, okay. He said uh, Tuesday, that is today, that the Italy is likely to begin easing their lockdown measures from May 4th. And he promises that he's going to move very cautiously. But May 4th is just around the bend. And this is really scary to pretty much the entire southern half of the country, which largely is the reason why a lot of people uh, want, they felt so desperately, you know, that Italy needed to go into that lockdown in the first place was because the North was much more equipped and still not equipped enough, obviously, but they were much more equipped than the Southern part of Italy to handle the pandemic because the North by nature is just a much more wealthy part of that country. And so the Southern country is much, much poorer. And now there's all of these fears that if they start to reopen and they don't do it very wisely, not only are they going to be right back where they were when Italy was still in the position where they didn't have enough gear, they were having to literally just let people die in hallways. They had to pick and choose who was getting ventilators and who wasn't. It's just a complete nightmare they're really afraid that that whole situation is going to play itself out in southern Italy now, which, like I said, has a healthcare system that is way, way less equipped than the northern healthcare system. So that's that's a very cautious story right now. Everyone's kind of going to be looking at how that goes, I think, very closely. Um, and I think, you know, just with... There's there's a trend in a lot of these stories today, which is a trend that p- 
people are starting to talk about more as they should. And I think over time, history is going to prove that it is the most important angle almost to analyze this pandemic through, uh, which is that people that are poor are the ones that are having the hardest time with this. Communities that are underserved and just don't have the resources are getting hit so hard in so many different ways, whether it be that their comorbidities tend to be higher in general, or they literally don't have the equipment to handle a pandemic in their areas. And and I think uh, there's a lot of different ways that that's playing out across the world, and it is incredibly telling. And I hope that looking back, we can see this as a motivation to really, really try to fix all of the income inequality that exists basically, you know, in pretty much every fucking country, some worse than others, obviously. Uh, But so one of the things that's coming out this week, uh, there is a prediction that the pandemic is likely to double the number of people facing acute hunger this year. Uh, This is according to a new report from the World Food Program. And they've, they've been detailing how the virus and the resulting lockdowns are going to exacerbate conditions in some of the world's poorest nations. There's about 265 million people in low and middle income nations uh, could face starvation by the end of 2020. This is a doubling of the 135 million who already faced acute food insecurity in 2019. Uh, this is a program that's a part of the United Nations, so kind of synonymous with... Um, studies by the UN essentially and most of the countries of the worst food crises are in Africa and the UN said on Monday that global donors had only pledged a quarter of the two billion dollars it needs to respond to the challenges brought by the pandemic so this is the sort of you know first it was like all right we gotta stay on top of the disease as much as we can and literally stop people from from dying as much as possible. But very quickly now, there are all these other factors that are being incredibly affected by the pandemic, and this is one of them. And it's it's really scary, and I really hope to see a lot of the people with all the fucking money stepping up and putting it towards solving these kinds of issues because there's already people that live paycheck to paycheck and you know as this article mentions it only takes one extra blow for it to completely knock people down it was already hard for them to eat and now in so many parts of the world it's literally impossible yeah i think somebody had said that like like a, a large percentage of americans are just like one four hundred dollar emergency away from being broke um, mm-hmm. so like if you're, you know, if you have a, if your brakes go out or you have to replace your transmission or you, some plumbing thing happens in your house that, you know, uh, and plumbing can cost thousands, but like, you know, just some $400 thing you have to come up with that isn't in your budget could just wreck you for a month. And, and mm-hmm. now it's just exacerbated. And now we've got these, you know, these extremely vulnerable communities that, mm-hmm. um, that are being hit, hit extra hard by this. And I know, I remember Liz Warren brought this up too in the debates when she was like, well, how come the only time we talk about, uh, systematic racism is when we're talking about criminal justice reform. It, it is touched. It is inter- it's it's intersectional with every single issue that happens in the United States, and that her point is now being borne out again with having to combat uh, this disease and this epidemic. So I'm glad that you that you're covering that, Jordan. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's really something that you know. I mean, solving world hunger was always one of the solution. You know, the solution was always going to require people that have money just putting it towards that problem. And 
consistently many people have contributed a lot of money, but obviously not nearly enough. And the systems that need to be changed to make it so that to make it so that everything um, can even remotely start to get better. And finally, coming out of the UK, Britain's Health Secretary Matt Hancock said today that trials of a coronavirus vaccine will begin on people this week. Uh, the government is going to make $24.5 million available to an Oxford University team to accelerate the work of getting that virus tested. And it's, it's, um, he said at a news conference that a successful outcome was far from guaranteed because vaccine development was, you know, more or less just a matter of trial and error. But he added that it would normally have taken two years to get to the point that they're at now. So that is exciting and something worth celebrating. He also announced funding to support vaccine development at Imperial College London and said that the government would invest in expanding manufacturing capacity to produce any successful vaccine on a large scale. Uh, and then professor of vaccinology at the Jenner Institute at Oxford University, uh, Sarah Gilbert. She said she told Sky News that she hoped that up to 500 people would be part of the trial by the middle of May. So that's exciting. Oh, good. So they're in phase one. That's good. And then, yeah, mm -hmm. phase two is uh, efficacy where you, you know, after the safety part is over, there's the efficacy trial where you determine if, you know, if it's effective. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know why I said that like Christopher Walken. Determine if it's effective. <laughs> Put googly eyes on it. Whoa. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that that's good news too. We've got a couple. There's a lot of different uh, trials out there. There's I know of a few vaccines that are in that in that phase. Um, I I think that we're gonna need a lot more antibody testing and immunity testing. Um, it, because you know, as you know, we've we've talked about some of those uh, preliminary tests that have come out that have shown. Um, a third of people uh, develop little or no antibodies after having contracted the virus. And if that's the case, uh, the weaker version of the virus, which is the vaccine, isn't going to develop, uh, maybe might not develop enough antibodies in, in that third of the population either. And that seems to be, correlatively speaking, and these aren't peer-reviewed yet, so uh, you know, I'm just speculating wildly, but if this is something that happens with younger folks, then these people can continue to spread the virus, carry it and spread it without being immune to it, even if they're inoculated. So they need to definitely do more studies on that to determine, first of all, if that's the case, and second of all, how to how to cope with that if if it is in fact the case. So we'll we'll see, but it, it's it's very good news that they're in that phase. So definitely. All right. Well, thank you, thank you for those stories, Jordan. Yes. Um. We have more news coming up uh, right after this break. Jordan, you'll be back with me for the good news block at the end of the show. So everybody stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by SaneBox. One of the biggest time wasters and one of my personal pet peeves is dealing with the constant onslaught of emails that are not important. We're all inundated with email, and it's it's not about responding to everything. It's about responding to the important things and the messages that matter. And that's where SaneBox comes in. Think of it as like a, a triage for your email. The messages come in, SaneBox decide what's, decides what's important, sifts out those important emails into your inbox, and directs all the rest into your Sane Later folder. Uh, so you know what messages to pay attention to now and what stuff you can go look at at your leisure. Uh, it also has nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can drag messages from annoying senders like the Trump campaign that you never want to hear from again. 
And it has sane reminders to ping you if someone has not replied to your email by a certain date, which is very helpful for me because my memory isn't the best. Uh, and best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client on any device, phone, anywhere you check your email. And see how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash Daily Beans to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash Daily Beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. So... Last night, the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee reaffirmed its support for the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia interfered in the 2016 election with the goal of electing Trump. That's a that's an important footnote there. And joining us today to talk about it is CEO of Lawfare and former CIA who used to brief Mueller on the daily, David Priest. David, thanks for speaking with me today. Hey, it's good to chat with you again. Thanks for having me. It is great to chat with you again. And and when I when I was uh, parsing this report, I thought. I need to speak to David Priest about this because I have some questions. Um, so I'd like you to start out by going over um, it, a lot of this has to do with I want to know sort of, you know, Rick Grinnell, the new DNI, who has not an ounce of intelligence experience, but heads up all the agencies. He recently released some previously classified footnotes from the Department of Justice Inspector General report. And this seems like an effort to convince Americans that the FBI failed to inform the FISC that some of Steele's dossier was actually Russian-planted disinformation. But this new report from the Republican-led, I want to say, Intelligence Committee, um, says the predication for opening the Russia investigation was not based on that dossier. We knew that. But hoping you could go over the main points uh, that you saw in this report. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating document. I mean, I've contributed to a whole lot of intelligence uh, back when I was at CIA and, of course, briefed Mueller and the attorney general on on things like this. But it's a different animal when a congressional oversight committee really digs into something. And they'll do this on a regular basis on various aspects of intelligence operations and analysis. But when they go all in on something like this, I guess the best the best public views of that in the past have been things like the 9-11 Commission, which which took that to a new level, or the analysis of the Iran National Intelligence Estimate about their nuclear capabilities, because it's really hard to do anything, whether it's an inspector general report or a full oversight report like this, and not find mistakes left and right. Because in retrospect, mistakes are clearly there. We're all human beings, and almost always these reports find sometimes egregious examples of things that could have been done better and should have been done better. What's remarkable about this document is reading it, they have almost nothing critical to say about the way that this analysis was performed. They talk about how they had a coherent and a well-constructed intelligence basis for the case of this unprecedented Russian interference. They talk about the analytic lines being solid based on all source information and relying in some cases heavily on open source or unclassified information. And in one case, they even highlight the fact that there were differing confidence levels on one of the analytic judgments. And they say that those differing confidence levels between the CIA and the NSA were justified and properly represented. So here they look at this intelligence community assessment that was produced at the president's request, and they look at it with hindsight and say, you know what? They did a really good job. They they reached conclusions that were sound based on the evidence they used, which did not include the Steele dossier. And 
they actually put in there some caveats on confidence appropriately. That is, they said when they were more sure or less sure about things and why that was so. And when there was a fundamental disagreement between the analysts of a couple of agencies, they noted that and they explained why. Right, because Trump was trying to exploit the difference between one of the intelligence agencies uh, confidence in conclusion and another, you know, with these with these analysts, he was trying to exploit that. And I think he was sending Durham after Brennan for that uh, sort of thing. So that's I mean, it, I really like how they lay that out in this report and say, here's why and and why everything is still OK. Well, and they make clear in even in the introduction, they say that the decision about how to present the differing confidence levels is ultimately with people like Brennan and uh, Mike Rogers, who was the head of NSA at the time. Those are the principles. They get to decide how they're going to represent the views of their analysts who feel strongly about something. And then ultimately, in theory, the DNI could play referee if need be. But in the introduction, they say that Brennan and Rogers both independently expressed to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence that they reached the final wording about the confidence levels openly and with sufficient exchanges of views. Sure doesn't sound like somebody was pushing somebody or somebody was unhappy with that. It, it, it sounds like a typical analytic process at that level. Nothing unusual there. Yeah. So not only does this report, you know, obviously undercut Trump's hoax claims, uh, but all, you know, all the previous three volumes did that, too. But it also sort of heads bar off at the pass with his investigation into the investigation, doesn't it? It sure does. Now, that, that said, there are some areas that the committee said would have been nice if you would have actually done this, this and this. And Barr could try to use that, although I got to say, none of them relate to the core intelligence conclusions that were reached in the document. There are things like the ICA, the ICA or the intelligence community assessment did not actually answer all of the presidential tasking. It did not give detailed reporting on Russian interference in 2008 and 2012. It simply referred to the fact that this was, this was different than those, but it didn't do a full reanalysis of those. It also says that open source collection could have been done better in some ways. But I got to tell you, that's, that's not a lot of material for a bar or a Durham to work with if they want to try to find a wedge on the judgments in this intelligence community assessment being wrong or being politicized. There's no evidence of it. In fact, they interviewed all, I believe, but if not all, most of the analysts involved in preparing this from the various agencies and the committee heard consistently that the analysts were under no politically motivated pressure to reach any specific conclusions. They all said that they were free to debate, to object to the content and assess confidence levels to basically do their job as analysts with no pressure whatsoever. That's going to be pretty hard to to find the opposite of that when it appears they were all in agreement on those points. And how sad that we have to second guess that because of the nature of what this administration is doing and saying. Um, and that's why, I mean, one of the reasons it's important that the that the intelligence committee gives credence to our intelligence community uh, is because of the, you know, the consistent uh, degrading comments by by Trump and, and his his people. But here's something interesting. This report also discusses Russia's current efforts 
and concluded they are continuing to interfere in our elections and elections in other countries. And, and why is that important? Well, I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, if you put yourself in the position of the Russians generally or Vladimir Putin in particular, which is an exercise a lot of intelligence analysts do, based on the information they're getting, based on the inputs they're getting, carrots and sticks from both foreign and domestic actors, how do you think they would behave? And based on what they and President Putin in particular have seen in the last few years, why would they not keep interfering? There's been no significant punishment. There's been no significant pushback. And if anything, there's been encouragement of some of the societal divisions that they continue to exploit with just about every time the president tweets or speaks up at a news conference. So I'm not surprised at all that there is some evidence of that continuing. And I'm not surprised at all that the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence would call it out because they've they've been clear about these things before. They've actually done a relatively good job about staying focused on what Russia is doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it in perhaps the least partisan way of any committee in Congress in recent history. That doesn't say that they've been perfect. There's been some things they haven't investigated. I think that Senator Burr from North Carolina has some serious questions to answer about other things. But when it comes to the way he's worked with John Warner on this committee, they seem to be the ones who are making sure that they represent what the intelligence community is finding in a way that is not biased or spun inappropriately. And um, before I let you go here, and, and because this is the part, I got to this part in, in this report that where I got really excited. And by the way, if, if you had told me a few years ago that I'd be getting really excited about speaking to somebody who, who used to be with the CIA about upcoming counterintelligence investigation reports, I would have not believed you. Our standards have changed. <laughs> But this was really exciting to me. Um, in this fourth volume it is a mention of the fifth volume, which will focus on the counterintelligence aspects of the Russia investigation. Uh, it's expected to be nearly a thousand pages. I'm sure most of it will be redacted, but it's in the editing stages. Can you remind us, first of all, how that counterintelligence investigation was conducted in parallel with Mueller's investigation and what you think we can expect? Not the content, but sort of how counterintelligence investigations draw conclusions or not. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to help. There, during the Mueller investigation, and I think you and I probably talked about this at the time, is most of us assumed that Mueller was investigating the Russian interference in the election uh, and that he was conducting a counterintelligence investigation. After all, as a former director of the FBI, he oversaw every counterintelligence investigation. He was well-placed to do that. Well, right, because the FBI comes at you with all the tools in their arsenal when they do an investigation. They don't just say, we're just going to look at the criminal parts and not the uh, counterintelligence parts. They come at, with, they come at you with their full, their full arsenal. Absolutely. And on this issue, it, it, makes, it makes total sense to do that. And it would, have, it would have not made sense if there was not a counterintelligence angle to this. It would have been just illogical. So many of us just assumed that Mueller was essentially running this this two-headed monster and then you know using each side to inform the other. What we found out, I believe, with the Mueller report itself was that that's not exactly how it worked. Yes, he had a team of personnel seconded from the Department of Justice, FBI, et cetera, to help him on the core investigation. But there was, in fact, a team of FBI employees who were processing information that was relevant to counterintelligence, and then essentially 
taking that back to FBI headquarters to work on the counterintelligence investigation. That's an important difference because it means that Mueller did not have the mantle to do a full counterintelligence investigation, which would be very difficult given the magnitude of this with, within reason if he had the right personnel. But it, made, it actually made sense for the FBI to still be doing that because the issue of having a special counsel, the, the core issue of that was about the Russian interference and political pushback on investigating that. Um, it was not necessarily about the counterintelligence case, which is necessarily compartmented much, much more. So we have the counterintelligence investigation that was going on. And now we have the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence evaluating that investigation. Now, I don't know what they're going to come out with. I don't think they're going to try to do a full counterintelligence investigation of their own because a committee in Congress does not have the same tools of the executive branch agency to do that. But to evaluate the counterintelligence program is one of the core oversight functions. In doing so, it's going to be fascinating to see what they come up with because counterintelligence investigations are even more than normal analysis in intelligence. Counterintelligence investigations are dealing with things that are obscure at best, often unknown, sometimes unknowable, and yet they have to reach judgments on, are we going to put surveillance on somebody? Are we going to use this tool in our toolkit? A lot of judgment calls have to be made based on not only incomplete information, but often contradictory information. They're very hard to do in a way that stands up to scrutiny perfectly. We certainly saw that with the Carter Page situation, which separate from this in most ways, but certainly related in terms of what happens in a process where human beings are involved. In this case, the FISA process was working much less well than any of us thought. It'll be interesting to see how much they focus on the FISA cases and how much they focus on CI overall. Based on the four volumes we've seen so far, I got to say, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. It looks like they are doing this in a very professional way, not because they're giving us answers we like, but because they're actually looking at it as a real-time product saying, what could we have expected at the time? And then what are our recommendations for what could be better? If they take the same attitude towards the CI volume, then I think we're going to be in good shape to learn quite a bit. And counterintelligence investigations don't uh, draw conclusions about crimes, uh, correct? My understanding, at least I think I, I think uh, either you told me about this or Andy uh, McCabe did, that they kind of make a determination if somebody is an asset, whether they're willing or unwilling, and, and to what degree they are. Um, sort of like how it, it, with Carter Page was evaluated in 2013 and we know how that all ended. At least our listeners know. Um, so what 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 sort of I mean, not that this won't all be behind redaction bars anyway, but do you think they would draw any kind of conclusion like that about any of uh, the Trump campaign folks or Trump himself? I don't think so. And it certainly wouldn't be um, in the open. It would be redacted because almost certainly the information that would lead to that judgment is so highly classified. It would be very difficult to to reveal that. But I don't think that's their purpose anyway. I mean, listen, the purpose of a counterintelligence investigation, yeah, as Andy would, would tell you or anyone who's, who's worked in the area, it's fundamentally different than an intelligence assessment. An intelligence assessment is here is a national security related issue that the president or the attorney general or the secretary of state, anyone down to a desk officer at the Treasury Department, someone involved in policymaking 
wants to know what do we think is going on based on the best information and assessment we can create. And so analysts put together their assessment. Did Russia interfere in the election? Does China have this kind of nuclear weapon? Is Kim Jong-un alive or dead? And then you give that input to the policymakers, and the policymakers take that, incorporate that if they wish into their policy decision, and then go forward and try to make better policy. That, that's the assessment side. Mm. Counterintelligence is not about that. Counterintelligence, usually assessments don't even go to policymakers outside of law enforcement. Occasionally, the president will be brought into a very significant counterintelligence investigation like Aldrich James being discovered as a spy for the Russians inside CIA a couple of decades ago. But normally that doesn't happen. Normally, a CIA investigation is designed to try to uncover at the maximum whether someone is a, an asset of a foreign intelligence service. That is, somebody is working to violate the national security of the United States by giving information or access to, a, at the extreme, a hostile power. Okay. Well, in that case, it, it's not about forming an analytic judgment about what Vladimir Putin is going to do in Europe next year. It's about trying to decide whether we need to arrest a spy fundamentally different. You're still using good tradecraft. You're still using all sources you can collect. But by necessity, it has to be very highly compartmented because you're asking questions that if those questions got out, that person would have a clue they were being investigated and you would lose evidence. So it's a very different kind of investigation, one that's hard to go back and look at in detail with the same, with the same mental framework that the investigators had at the time, because you've learned so much as you go along in a CI investigation. I expect they'll do a thorough job on it, but I don't think we're going to get a list of names of actual paid assets of foreign governments in the next volume of the report. Mm, yeah, no. And and even if a counterintelligence investigation concludes that uh, the president was acting maybe maybe unknowingly uh, to benefit a foreign hostile power. What do you do with that? Just go, oh, well, okay. You know, <laughs> there, what, do you, what do you do with it? You can't just, you know, we, we, you and I know that we've, you and I have talked about that as just sort of just how it goes. But yeah, I don't think we're going to see that either. So thanks for clarifying that. Thanks for answering my questions. Before I let you go, can you tell people where they can find you and your book, How to Get Rid of a President, which is an incredible book, by the way? Oh, sure. Um, I'm the chief operating officer at Lawfare. So you'll you'll see the outcome of a lot of people's work coming from lawfareblog.com, where we're covering a lot of these issues. Uh, my books are The President's Book of Secrets, about how intelligence is briefed to senior officials, and as you mentioned, how to get rid of a president, all the ways that presidents have left office or could be kicked out of office in our country. Um, I'm on Twitter at David Priest, uh, P-R-I-E-S-S. Well, thanks again for joining us, and uh, you and your family stay safe. Yeah, you too. Thanks, A.G. All right, coming up next is the Good News Block, so stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's A.G. This portion of Daily Beans is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Growing up, cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid. I used to park my butt in front of the television, watch Saturday morning cartoons, and eat cereal. But as an adult, I had to give it up because the cereal I loved was, had a bunch of sugar and chemicals and, and carbs and junk I really shouldn't eat. But I'm excited to share I have found Magic Spoon. It is a cereal that tastes so delicious 
but without sugar, no carbs, or guilt. Magic Spoon brings me right back to the feeling of being a kid again. I love to eat the cereals. You will not believe it's healthy. Forbes magazine says with cereal that tastes so good and offers so much nutritional value, Magic Spoon may be the future of breakfast. And I concur. Magic Spoon cereals amazingly have zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving with four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. Magic Spoon tastes incredible. It's too good to be true, but it is true. I have eaten it, and it is friggin' amazing. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And my favorite flavor right now is blueberry. Yesterday it was frosted because I hadn't tried the blueberry. Now I've tried the blueberry, and blueberry is my favorite. It will change again tomorrow, but it is so delicious. Uh, I even snack on it dry, um, so it's guilt-free. Go to magicspoon.com slash dailybeans and grab a, vari- uh, grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code dailybeans at checkout as well to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash dailybeans and use code dailybeans for free shipping. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It is time for good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way. And joining me for the good news block today is, again, welcome back, Jordan Coburn. Hello. Hola. How are you? Good. How are you doing? <laughs> the same old, same much old. Since <laughs> the beginning. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to be let in on a little secret here, but uh, we actually just record the bits back to back. Don't tell anybody anything. <laughs> the magic of time travel. We have been able to bring you this show in different segments. Again, it's very memento. You're going to love it. Um, Before we get to our listener good news and our our, um, COVID confessions, our quarantine confessions, I have a few bits of good news for you, Jordan, that you're going to love. Thank you. First, and this is breaking. This is breaking. The National Institute of Health is recommending against doctors using a combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for the treatment of COVID-19 patients because of potential toxicities. Quote, the combination... Uh, was associated with QTC's prolongation in patients with COVID-19. So uh, real quick, QTC prolongation basically increases the risk of sudden cardiac death. So this flies in the fucking face of the orange face man and his Mm -hmm. Ukraine clown posse who's been relentlessly pushing this miracle cure um, to either profit from it personally or, or just to get Trump reelected. We haven't, we don't know for sure, but there for, for John Solomon and, and Rudy Giuliani and Dr. Phil, doctors, Phil and Oz and Trump and all of his cronies to try to push this drug so hard. It's just very weird that they're doing that. Um, and as for using hydroxychloroquine alone, the National Institute of Health panel says there is insufficient clinical data to recommend for or against it. No data. Insufficient data. There's data. It's insufficient. And in other good news, San Diego Police Department has said of the flu clucks clan rallies, which I've heard them called, which I love, um, quote, while no citations were issued at the protests, that does not mean prosecution will not be sought, especially to the organizers of the events. And that's from the San Diego Sheriff's Department. And we had like a hundred protesters here in San Diego um, having a rally. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, 
Finally, the uh, Centers for Disease Control is expanding the public health workforce by adding 650 new jobs to the existing 600 positions at state health departments around the country to assist with the upcoming massive needs of testing, contact tracing, and prevention of new outbreaks of, of COVID-19. So that's very cool. So yeah, probably the, these jobs for the CDC will be up on USA Jobs. And Jordan, I was like, I'm so tempted to get one of these jobs. I could easily get one of these jobs. I have a, a public health degree. I've worked in public health for 12 years, uh, government, etc. cetera. Uh, but I don't, but like, have I let, have I not yet learned my lesson in working for the government under this, <laughs> under this administration? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Like, like, have I not yet? And also, do I have enough to do already? And, and, and it isn't my job really to, to bring, you know, to, to, to hang out with Jordan and, and bring you all the news that's uh, important with swears, right? I mean. I, th- I think so. But really, that's a you call, you know? I know. I just have this thing. You've you've answered the call of duty once before. I guess now it's up to you if you want to do it again. They would be very lucky to have you. Couple times answered the call of duty for the Navy. Answered the call of duty to work for the VA. Then I answered the call of duty to work for Denny's while I was going to college. Uh, very <laughs> very important um, job. And uh, yeah, but you know me. The government's like, we need you. Help us. And I'm all, oh, I'm like, it's like my kryptonite. I'm, oh. I have to like be of service. Ask not what your country can do. Uh, I can't get Obama out of my head. JFK. Anyway, <laughs> I'll do my best to to not <laughs> to not take that job. But uh, you know, we'll see what. Maybe I can do it from from. Maybe I can do it from home. Mm, yeah, that's true. I wonder. I, um, I mean, yeah, telework and that kind of situation. I imagine is going to continue once anything even remotely gets back to normal. Right. And I mean, if you're just doing, uh, you know, data or contact tracing, it's something that, you you know, you just need a, a seat and a computer or a standing desk. You know, Veradesk is good. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. You know what? I will probably look into it, but I don't know. Um, so anyhow, those are my little bits of good news. What do you have uh, from the listenership area? Yes. Uh, first off, thank you for those good news. Is this good news? Yes, of course. Uh, our, our good news from our listeners starts off with Vicky. Vicky says, I think Colorado Governor Paulus has done so well flattening our curve here and is using data models to make informed decisions about how to open back up. Next week, we go from 70 to 75% closed businesses to only 60% closed. He calls it the safer at home phase versus stay at home. This is a marathon, not a sprint. All right. That's progress. All right. Cool. Uh, next, from Mark. Mark says, good news. I live in Milkshake Matt Gates's district in a neighborhood with a lot of elderly people, so you can imagine their politics. Regardless, my neighborhood has come together to write letters of support and thanks to our local hospital workers. As an added bonus, everyone is mailing their letters individually, which means they are using USPS and lots of stamps. While we may disagree on politics, we can all come together to thank the helpers and help a valuable institution like USPS. Excellent. Sweet. Love. Love that. So sorry about your rep. That yeah. fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. That sucks very badly. Hopefully he'll be gone soon. Um, that sounded a lot more om- ominous than I meant it to, but you know what I mean. Next. From- <laughs> voted out. <laughs> voted out. Hopefully yes. he'll be voted out soon. <laughs> Do you- <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have any funny business in the works. 
Um, yeah, he's six feet right. away <laughs> under. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, God, fucking Matt Gates. I hope. Never mind. I was going to get dark there. Anyways, okay, next. From Don. Keeping it light. Good news. I'm so happy to still have you ladies listen to pretty much every day. I have been boycotting most news, going from being a total news junkie to barely anything now, so I rely on you and Matto to keep me updated. Recently, in the good news segment, you mentioned that you can still order Girl Scout cookies. I wanted to further add that Girl Scouts is suffering a bit and has had to furlough and lay off people and all the other not-so-fun things. Plus, cookie season was cut short because of COVID, so anything people can do to support the Girl Scouts, including buying cookies, is awesome. Thank you for mentioning it. They've obviously already canceled all of the Girl Scout camps for the summer, which is such a bummer, as it was going to be my daughter's first time to go. Also, you were joking about them having an outbreak patch on the show, and so I wanted to tell you that at least the Washington Girl Scouts do actually have themed patches for the girls to work towards right now. They are the Great Cascadia Zombie Survival Challenge COVID-19 edition. We wanted to do something fun to educate them on the virus and how to prepare for natural disasters. Thanks again for the great work, and please everybody buy some Girl Scout cookies online. How awesome. I love that that's so cool the zombie oh my god that is such a great badge thank you for that i agree 100 percent. i think the girl scouts is an incredible organization Uh, i was a girl scout i started as as a brownie and worked my way up and became a camp counselor and i'm so sorry she's gonna miss her first sleepaway camp because girl scout camp was like some of the best times and um we have we have we have a girl scout listener remember our patrons whose daughter her name is Allie and she's a girl scout and she listens with her friend to to well the Muller she wrote podcast I don't know if they listen mm, to the beans or yeah. not but if you do <clears throat> Allie hi and also everyone go go online and buy some girl scout cookies support this organization I think they're wonderful yes yeah I think um who who doesn't need cookies right now you know mm? everybody mm? needs everybody needs cookies go mm-hmm. get the cookies I love that mm-hmm. they're doing that the quarantine patches and there's so many like different levels of awareness that kids growing up in this time period are gonna have it's like so nuts the different economic lessons and like public health lessons and and all these crazy crash course lessons that people Mm. are starting to learn and i just think about how impressionable you are around that age and how wild of a time this is to grow up in my heart goes yeah, out to all the little kiddos. Understanding mortality and, and I mean, it's just, it's going to be such a mature, like, no one's ever going to be able to tell this generation, like, you were handed everything, you participation trophy, bitch, you know, like, these are going to be, like, solid motherfucking people. And this is probably going to be, I think, this this new generation, one of the best. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. Uh, all right, next from Rebecca. Good news about something totally different. Sea turtle nests. With fewer people on beaches, more sea turtles are able to lay their eggs. Some of the increase is attributed to less boat traffic, too. In Thailand, researchers have found 11 leatherback turtle nests since November, the most in 20 years in that same time frame. Awesome. That's that's really cool. I saw that SeaWorld, although I know that's a very controversial organization, Um but I I saw an article, you know, they're, they're San Diego's home theme park here, so uh, it's kind of hard to escape news that relates to them. They apparently are, their rescue program, when they'll release animals back into the ocean, normally they have to drive super far out, apparently, to drop the turtles or whatever they do. <laughs> and um, 
because there's like no one on the beaches, they get to just release them onto the beach. And so they get to naturally, you know, go on the sand and then enter into the ocean like like normal, which is cool. I wonder if Mitch McConnell is moved at all by this, you know, that his, you know. <laughs> Let my people go. <laughs> yeah. His family is thriving. <laughs> when Mitchell oh was in Egypt's land, let my turtles go. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, That would be um, amazing. Turtles are like the only thing in the world he gives any shits about, even remotely. <laughs> he, he just goes home every day to his kingdom of turtles. <laughs> just, you see him just running out on the beach, like with some, <laughs> some cars driving down the beach, and he's running out on the beach like, no, 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 stop, stop, <laughs> laying down in front of the turtles, or in front of the car. <laughs> no, not, not my yeah. family. Yes. Like how there's pictures of Bernie getting arrest- arrested at a civil rights protest. You can probably go far back enough and see Mitch just like <laughs> chaining himself to some turtle habitat somewhere. <laughs> Has anybody made a meme, by the way, of like Mitch McConnell choking on one of those six pack rings? Like, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Or a straw, <laughs> a plastic bag or something. <laughs> oh, God. So good. Well, that's a beautiful piece of news, Rebecca. And finally, from Roberta, Roberta says, I made AG's recipe for mushrooms and red wine that she mentioned on the patron live stream, and they are amazing. I hid the oh. leftovers in the back of the fridge so I don't have to share. <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad it worked and I didn't leave anything out. Excellent. Yeah, that sounds like it went over swimmingly and that sounds delicious. Actually, mm. sh- I'm going to make that shit. Was there butter? I forget. What was in the recipe again? You can use butter or ghee, whatever you normally use to saute mushrooms. And then um, okay. once the water boils off, you just dump one of those tiny little bottles of wine in there and, and, and then put it on low and let it simadana until it's uh, until the mushrooms absorb all the wine. Mm. And you can do that once or twice. Um, it's delicious either way. Uh, if you do it with one little bottle of wine, you'll have, um, you can still taste the buttery flavor. And if you do it with two bottles of wine, it's mostly just the wine flavor. It's really, really good. I use a cab, Fuck. Cabernet. God, that sounds so good. I have, I'm going to do that shit. I got bottles of wine that it's hard. Cause it's like, if I open up a bottle of wine, I have to drink it all. And I don't particularly enjoy that much wine. So if I can put half of it into some mushies, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, all right, good. we are on to quarantine confessions, everybody. This is a section where our listeners send in moments during the quarantine that are hilarious, embarrassing, revealing. Take your pick. Tweet them at us, at Daily Beanspod. Uh, our first is up. We have three Lisas, three different Lisas who <laughs> sent in quarantine confessions. Our first is from Lisa Ann. Lisa Ann says, I have attended Zoom meetings with the office confessional background as my meeting background, and I'm still waiting for someone to notice and ask me why Stanley is in the desk behind the blinds. I'm planning on switching to having the whole Star Trek The Next Generation crew behind me and me in the captain's chair if people don't notice it soon. <laughs> Star Trek did just release a bunch of Zoom backgrounds for meetings, so and you can do the bridge. Oh my- um, of TNG or uh, OS, it's 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 awesome. That's so funny. I love that. Uh, all right, next from Lisa. I ate all the chocolate, all of it. My husband asked me if I ate all the chocolate, and I denied it with an aura of totally bombiesque. Is that how you say that? Bombiesque. Bombesque. Never heard that word. Bombesque. I've never heard that word before. Hello, Bombay. Bombay. Bambi, bamboozle, Bambi, Bam- oh, Bambi-esque. 
Yes, ah. totally Bambi-esque innocence. There we go. Mm. That makes uh-huh. sense. To my <laughs> to my sense. eternal and secret shame, I then turned slowly and mutely to look at my seven-year-old daughter. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, that's fantastic writing for a quarantine confession. Thank you. That was beautiful. Mm. Yes. It's in the room. All right, next we have a few more from Lisa M. I'm a huge RuPaul's Drag Race fan and have been watching a lot of old seasons lately to take my mind off of everything horrible. I find that now when when I'm playing with my dogs in the yard, I no longer use the standard good boy or good girl words of encouragement. Now it's you better work and yas queen. (laughs) I yell at the top (laughs) of my lungs. My neighbors think I'm nuts. The dogs don't care. They just like to play. That's so good. (laughs) I haven't seen that show yet, and I feel like I'm really, really missing out on an era. You are. It's 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 amazing. Yeah, I gotta check that out. Next from Steph. We're all done with the Lisas. Bye, Lisas. Thank you. Uh, from Steph. I thought my daughter needed a mental health break day, so I did her schoolwork for her and sent her out to paint the mailbox instead. Because you know, why the hell not? Now our mailbox is spectacular looking, and it turns out I'm pretty good at the second grade. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a chill pretty good at the mom, second dude. grade. I know it's like Billy yeah. Madison. It's cool to pee your pants. <laughs> yeah, second grade is hard. Second, all those, all those single-digit grades are when you learn all that useless shit. That's like I don't fucking remember any of this stuff. Maybe not second grade, actually. I guess you're still learning the basics. But like once you get to like fourth and fifth grade, that's like useless shit. Period. You know. Mm. Second grade was cursive. I remember learning cursive in second grade. Yeah. I learned cursive in third. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The expectations shifted that a year from, from your all. generation to mine. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. See, you millennials. <laughs> uh, it's always... This is this is why we're like this. They've been babying us. They bump, they're like, no, they can't handle cursive in the second grade. We'll have to push it up to third, and that's when it all started. Now, we don't wipe our own asses. We require bidets. It's all fucked. Uh-huh. Um, all right. Funny. Finally, from Lindsay. Lindsay says, I get up in the morning, shower, and get ready for my business day by putting on clean pajamas. Nice. Excellent. Love that. Excellent. That's what, that's what you got to do. PJs all day. That's all I got. All right. Well, before I let everybody go, I do have a, I do have a tiny bit of uh, schadenfreude for everyone. Schadenfreude. Okay. So, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. Okay. He, uh, he he was able to obtain, I think it was five hundred thousand masks, um, and he he did that, or excuse me, tests. He was he was able to obtain five hundred thousand tests for COVID from South Korea. But the only reason he was able to do that without the government coming in and Trump taking them or you know having to outbid FEMA is because his wife Yumi Hogan. Uh, was is from there and she speaks Korean. So she called her contacts in South Korea and, and was able to fluently speak Korean and everyone who, who watches Maddo saw this and he was able to, to obtain these masks. So anyway, he gets the masks. Trump gets pissed about it at, a, at, at one of his, you know, task force briefings, which we don't even cover anymore because fuck those dudes. And he's mad about it. Oh, he went around the system, blah, blah, blah. And, and he just like gave him, gave him a hard time. And then later on, um, Trump uh, sent uh, us, you know, as a separate thing, sent Governor Hogan a list of federal labs 
saying that Maryland could use some of them for COVID-19 testing. And Governor Larry Hogan fucking tweeted. He tweeted, uh, I'm grateful to President Trump for sending us a list of federal labs and generously offering Maryland use of, for the, uh, use of them for COVID-19 testing. Accessing these federal labs will be critical for utilizing the 500,000 tests we have acquired from South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like rubbing it in his face like hey thanks we can use all these tests i got that you're mad about nah, it's just oh really God. really good shade that's great yeah. love that i just wanted to p- put that out there you can check it out follow uh governor larry hogan gov larry hogan on twitter check out his tweets got one hundred and five thousand likes it's been making the rounds everybody's really happy about it mm-hmm. all right well that's all i got do you have any final thoughts jordan uh no i don't think so thank mm-hmm. you everybody for listening and Oh, if you're not watching John Krasinski's Some Good News, you have to start watching that shit. Weekly episodes led by the one and only Jim from The Office, and he is so fucking nice. And every week, he does something so epic. Last week, he threw prom for all of the seniors, uh, and he had like the Jonas Brothers come on and perform, Billie Eilish and her brother performed, and they just, it's, yeah, he has like such a beautiful dad heart. Yeah, he does. Dad, not dad, dad, dad heart. Dad, yes, dad, (laughs) D-A-D. All right, well, thanks for that. And um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for contributing if uh, if you are. And if you can't totally understand, thanks for listening. It helps. Everything helps. Every little bit helps. Um, And I appreciate all of you uh, to the moon and back. So everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G. I've been Jordan Coburn. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>